Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. This is our 148th show. Today's guest, and we welcome Dr. Peter Campo, author of The Emergent Approach to Strategy, which was an awesome book, one that you need to actually read a few times to pick up everything. And so, Peter, we're great to have you. And what's also great is that Peter is one of the few authors I've interviewed that actually is, lives near me. So he's in drive time of me in the sta- wonderful state of Delaware, where our president comes from. So, Peter, uh, please tell us about your background. Sure. And thanks for having me. Um, my background, as maybe you can see here, started with music. I grew up in a musical family in New York in New York uh, City area, and then slowly migrated to sciences and engineering. And I got a uh, uh, a doctorate in chemical engineering at City College in New York. And then I joined DuPont down here in Wilmington, Delaware. And I spent 25 years with the DuPont company in a very wide range of positions, ranging from supply chain, to operations, to planning, to businesses, uh, business management, uh, market management. And I also worked in uh, old, very old commodity businesses and new ventures in the electronics and displays industry. Uh, so I had a very di- diverse career there. I left after 25 years to work full-time on developing my, my work on the emergent approach and adaptive systems. Um, Maybe uh, all that diverse background uh, is not just a novelty. Actually, um, one of the reasons I ended up writing what I did was because I saw the same patterns in all of these fields, uh, science, technology, music, business operations, the same adaptive patterns of what created innovations. So I think that my background uh, has given me a, a a way to see things that maybe someone who's just been in one of those fields um, uh, uh, might not have. And, and why did you write this book? I wrote this book for a few reasons, and it kind of snuck up on me anyway. I never intended to write a book until it was starting to happen. Uh, I'd always been interested in creativity and innovation. I was always interested in how composers could do what they did and scientists when I started getting into the sciences and so forth. And then when I got into DuPont, I got interested in uh, in the whole question of innovation in corporate settings and technology and business innovation. And um, I saw, as I said, the same patterns, that it was an adaptive process, not a planned, visionary, necessary uh, process. Um, And I wanted to bring that to strategy. The other is that I was somewhat, well, I was very disappointed with the state of strategy practice, not only in DuPont, and I don't think DuPont was hardly different than many other companies, 
but also the many very high-priced consultants that came in to DuPont uh, over the years, and you know all who they are. Um, I just didn't feel that strategy had a foundation uh, in terms of its definition and its function, and I didn't think that it had been connected to how things and innovation really happens, the adaptive, uh, the adaptive view of the world. And you, uh, can you give us an overview of the two parts of the book? Yeah, the first part is theory and the implications of the theory. I, um, I do a, a critical review of all of the definitions people are familiar with about strategy from all the big names and so forth. And then I derive what a strategy is from a little model of complex adaptive systems, little influence diagram model. But I think it's very powerful and leads me to a, a definition. Um, I also give a primer there on what does it mean to be an adaptive way of innovating. And, I, and then the next few chapters bring those two threads together. Um, once I've got that theory and that definition, it informs the difference between strategy and tactics and execution and a few other things. And how do you define strategy? Well, let me, can and- I, I didn't finish. I'm sorry. I should have. Yep. Part two, the second half of the book is putting all that into practice and how a different view of strategy and innovation would modify the way people do traditional strategy practice. And the overall concept of it is instead of it being a stepwise, you know, and no one really wants it to be a recipe, but it can end up being like a recipe. It's more like putting a puzzle together, a puzzle that you know, there's no picture on the top of the box and that none of the pieces fit together exactly, so forth. So this the second part is going through all the traditional strategy methods and techniques and modifying them to, to align with the theory. Online, emergentapproach.com, there's also a set of task sets that kind of are a guidebook to implementing the, uh, the practice of uh, part two. And um, how do you define strategy uh, and strategic? And what's the difference? Let's do strategy first. Um, And let me start with a little bit of what it's not. Um, It's not a set of goals. It's not just making choices. It's not a business plan, though it may have elements of a business plan. It's not just what's long-term and important and Maybe most of all, it's not a long list of sub goals and plans and so forth. And the majority of strategies that I've ever seen in business, in military, in nonprofits, in uh, government, education, consists of visions, missions, other beliefs and values and, and so forth. And then long, long lists of sub goals and initiatives. And these are not strategies. And in fact, these big constructions, these frameworks with strategies, goals, aspirations, missions, visions, uh, values, tactics, metrics, plans, usually the one thing that's missing in these strategic plans is a strategy. So, well, I, 
They sound like to-do list, like what those people are. They end up looking like to-do lists and sounding like they are to-do lists in many in many ways. And the problem is what makes it all consistent, what makes it all coherent, such that the entire organization is working towards the same direction. And so where I arrive, and I think the person who's closest in spirit and in reality to where I come out is Richard Rommel, who just left retired from UCLA after many years, uh, in the last few years, um, he retired. And that is that a strategy is a central rule. It's a central policy designed to what I call bust the bottleneck to reaching your desired outcome, your aspiration, whether that's vision, goals, missions, um, whatever that aspiration is, the strategy is a policy to overcome, to get around, to lessen whatever is in the way of achieving the aspiration. And that thing that's in the way, I call the bottleneck for various reasons. And we're going to talk more about that bottleneck, but we have a question from the audience. You obviously had this adaptive strategy thesis while at DuPont. What were the issues with advancing this thesis at DuPont and other uh, general, in general, other large corporations? I think, um, actually, once I got people into it, once I got people seeing the the process and seeing what's in part two, the practice, this, which in many ways, the simplicity of it and the directiveness of it, um, I did have quite a bit of success. It's interesting that the most success I had, I believe, was with people in operations and manufacturing who were somewhat starved for direction from the businesses. And I do have to admit that many business leaders are not necessarily open to new ideas on strategy because they kind of think they have... um, they kind of think that the reason why they're business leaders is because they know strategy. And that wasn't always true, but there was a little bit of that, that situation. I would say that quickly, the other issue is that um, the other issue is that uh, uh, there's so much out there about strategy. How many books, how many experts from big consultancies, from big academic you know, schools? It's such a noisy space that it's very, very hard to um, introduce new ideas. Um, Another question from the audience. The word emergence seems to be what distinguishes your approach. How so? Well, the word emergent relates to evolution and adaptive systems. And the idea is that in... um, In natural selection, in biology, which is the inspiration for what's become the science of adaptive systems, you don't select the winner. You don't select the future. You have this constant process of creating variations, and then the variations that are most fit due to the stressors of the environment are slowly winnowed away, leaving the emergent good thing, the variations that made sense, the variations that were valuable. So emergence is another term in some ways for evolution that in adaptive systems, you don't pick the winner. The winner is the last standing. 
It emerges from all of this work that's going on, this constant destruction of variations that are always coming. And you're constantly destroying them, the ones that aren't fit, leaving those that are fit to evolve into new structures and new capability. So think emergence, think evolution. Only the strong survive. In principle, that's the way it's supposed to be, yes. Okay, uh, someone has put out there something uh, about the book here. You mentioned through our, uh, throughout the book the term uh, called SAM, Strategic Alternative Matrix. W what is that and how does that work? Yeah, the SAM, and I, I, you know, I tried my best not to create new TLAs, uh, three-letter acronyms in the book, yeah. but I just didn't want to write Strategy Alternative Matrix a million times, so I called it the SAM. Um, Strategy matrix are not a new idea. They've been around forever. And this one, the SAM, is a new twist on a strategy matrix. And it is, in fact, the thing that has evolved in part two in the practice of creating and designing strategy and implementation designs. Um, you evolve it. And what it is, is you compare strategy alternatives in the column headings. And then on the row headings, you have fitness criteria and we're back to fitness. How will you judge one strategy versus another? Is it projected revenue, cost, complexity, alignment with the strategy, um, feasibility, risks? So many things that can be part of your evaluation of what makes one strategy better than another. So you set this matrix up. And one thing that's different is that I say you don't do it one piece at a time. You do a draft, a rough draft. Um, this is akin to agile development in software development, where you get a minimum essential strategy matrix, and then you work it. You evolve it. You beat the hell out of it. You work variations. You study it. You get outside input. You get inside input. You model, you research, and slowly but surely, this matrix starts to come clear. And which variations are, are good and bad are, are, are decided. And you create new, new strategy alternatives, and you dismiss old ones, and you change your criteria, and you assess them. And uh, at the end, the truth should emerge. That's the objective. The, the right, the best winner should emerge. And in fact, I say, you don't pick a winner, really. The winner's the last standing. You let it come to you. Uh, Pete, uh, what kind of people are on your team when you're developing these um, strategic plans? And how long does it take to put it together? And, and isn't there a chance by the time you finish it, depending on how long it takes, the plan could become obsolete or, or the objectives of the company might have changed by the CEO? Well, you're hitting a few things there. Um, and I think you're responding perhaps to, you know, I say a few things in there that raise some eyebrows. For example, one is I, I recommend extend in time, extend the process in time as much as you can, um, because this enables some really good things to happen. Uh, the first is there's no way you're going to involve the people who are on the front lines 
And I'm talking about sales, people in regions, people running factories, people interfacing with customers and so forth. You'll never get these people into a short strategy process over three weeks and um, and and let and they drop everything. It just it just doesn't happen. So if you extend in time, you can get them part time and you get these people that really have to be part of the thought process. Um, the other thing that relates to time is the need for soak. And I think this is one of the things that comes out of the theory of innovation. The theory of innovation and, and adaptation is that people need to internalize what the concepts mean. How many times do you have new ideas that are thrown out in a strategy process? Everybody nods their head in approval, right? And, oh, yeah, that's great. That's really, you know, and, and it might be. But within three days, it's all forgotten. It's not, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't get into your heart. I'll, I'll never forget, um, I had an old Russian piano teacher when I was in my uh, early college years, Vladimir Havsky. And he was a refugee from the revolution and went to Shanghai. And then he somehow got to New York and New Jersey. And he used to tell me, you know, until you've memorized a piece, you don't, you can't say that you really know it and that you've played it because you haven't. And why he said, why do you think they say it, you have to get it in your heart? You have to know it by heart. And I think this is something is really missed in strategy development methods is that people don't get it in their heart. They don't really internalize what's being said, the implications of what's being said, and can lead to, you know, these things sitting on the shelf, uh, collecting electronic dust, right? Um, I think that the need for time for internalization is, is crucial as well. Now, Sometimes there's deadlines. Sometimes you have to make decisions. But that doesn't mean the strategy process has to end. Almost everybody now says strategy should be an evergreen, ongoing process yeah. where you have stop points. Okay, we got to buy something. Let's make that decision. But that doesn't mean we stop thinking about it. The other point is that adaptive means as you start walking down the road with whatever you said you were going to do, you're going to learn. You're going to react to the environment. You were going to be wrong about a lot of things and right about others. How do you modify? How do you modify so that those new learnings are taken into consideration? If you do a once a year strategy process in three weeks, none of this can happen. Uh, what are adaptive systems and what company best displays them? So, and by the way, we didn't get to what strategic means. And I want to come back to that when we get a chance. Um, uh, adaptive systems. So we talked about this a little bit, but the essence of it is that innovations, creativity in human systems, culture, in our culture, actually occurs in the same way it does in biological nature. Of course, making the translation between the two is not trivial. And that's something that's still in play right now and something that's uh, being debated quite a bit. But the essence of it is that an adaptive system, you, and I've said this, you don't pick the future, you don't select the future, you evolve towards it with this constant effort of dealing with 
um, dealing with variations that come up and then slowly but surely winnowing out the ones that don't make sense, leaving the ones that do. Um, another big part of an adaptive system, and this is probably the most difficult and the most um, important to convey, uh, is that the interactions, the work that really goes on are at what's called low levels versus the high levels where the innovations emerge. And this idea of local versus global, low versus high, uh, micro versus macro, you'll see it described in many different ways. We don't really have a common language how to describe this, but I think sometimes sports are a good are a good example. And I, I, I'll use music as well in the book. Um, how does a... Um, how does a, a I'm sorry to use a baseball for all use folks outside of uh, outside of the States and the Caribbean um, uh, or I mean, Korea and Japan. Um, uh, if you're going to be a great home run hitter, do you go up there thinking I'm going to hit home runs? Is that all you do in batting practice? Hit home runs, swing as hard as you can to smack it over the wall? No. The great home run hitters don't try to really hit home runs. They don't even think about hitting home runs. They think about their mechanics. They think about their discipline of their swing. They think about learning pitches and how to recognize them and not to be seduced by the moment and staying within their discipline over time. These are all low-level activities, low-level things that have nothing to do with the desired outcome, which is hitting a home run. Um, another example is uh, go to music. One of the things that I noticed when I went to DuPont and that was in a lot of books, especially at that time, so you know, in the early 90s, the activity, the thing they held up as the epitome of creativity and innovation was jazz, uh, jazz improvisation. And uh, I had quite a bit of background in jazz improvisation. My father was a jazz bass player and violin player in New York, and I grew up with it. And um, I think they missed something about it and still do. Um, the idea that jazz improvisation is all about just being free, man. You know, just let it all out. Let it happen. You just be completely uninhibited. And there's something to that. But it's not really what makes great improvisers. Um, the greatest improviser, perhaps, of all time, jazz, Charlie Parker, Bird, Yardbird, um, known as his nickname, um, talked about it. He used to talk about how much he studied and other people would talk about how much he prepared. And he used to say, learn the changes and forget them. And what did that mean? Changes are the chord structure of a tune, the harmony. What, what changes? G major, B flat minor to E flat major. He said, learn the changes and then forget them. And what he was saying was you have to internalize the fundamentals of the tune before you can improvise. And you have to internalize it so deeply, and this is that soak again, you have to internalize it so deeply that you know it by heart, that you know it deeply, so then you can improvise in a way that's not cliches 
and not random nonsense. So I think they meant to talk about freedom, but actually the freedom came from discipline, quite the opposite. And you so, can talk about this in almost any field, scientific discovery. I use Marie Curie as an example. Uh, actually, I read her biography in grad school. And, the, and this was one of the things that really got me on the, uh, on the adaptive direction. When she discovered radium, she didn't guess that it was radium. That's not how she figured it out. She destroyed all the possibilities and she was left with the last one standing that it had to be a new it had to be a new element. She didn't guess it at all. She destroyed all the other explanations at low levels. So let's go back to you explaining strategic. Okay. I really, really recommend people not to use the word strategic. And this is why. Somehow it's used in a way that implies something smart and good if you stick the word strategic in front of a word. So for example, a strategic goal versus a goal or um, a strategic priority. Are you going to uh, focus on your strategic priorities and ignore your priorities? How about your strategic dashboard? You're gonna ignore your dashboard, but focus on your strategic dashboard? No, the, the adjective strategic doesn't really add anything. All it does is try to imply that what you're saying is long-term and important, and that doesn't add any value at all. The only time I say use strategic is you can say it for the strategic plan, the entire collection of aspirations, plans, strategy, tactics, the whole, the whole thing. Otherwise, I really recommend to, uh, to avoid it. A technical definition of strategic it's relating to the bottlenecks. In the military, what are the strategic areas around the world? The Straits of Malacca, uh, Malacca do I have it right? Yeah, um, or one of the Straits there. The um, uh, G Gibraltar, uh, the North Sea. These are the pinch points. These are the bottlenecks that have to be controlled and have to be managed. Uh, these are the strategic things. So I think the best definition for strategic is relating to what's in the way. What's the bottleneck? But I think it's best not to use it at all. So a question from the audience. Adaptive and natural selection systems can be slow, very slow. What is the best way to speed that up in a business setting? And how do you quickly eliminate uh, non-productive alternatives? And a lot of our listeners are entrepreneurs and don't have the same time frame that a large company has? I think that's a, a fantastic question to, to talk about. I think number one, in my method, and I'm not the only one who talks about this. For example, Roger Martin stresses, stresses this. What you don't want to do, and Mark Blackwell also stresses this very heavily, R. Carroll, um, do not roll out the usual suspects of beginning a strategy process. Do not roll out share and costs and revenue. And this data, you have no idea if this data is needed. What happens in so many strategy processes, they spend weeks, maybe even months collecting all this information and no one is asked what the hell's the question? What are we focused on right now? What you can do to immensely speed up things is immediately ask the question, can we really articulate what needs to change and why we're reopening the strategy process? 
Number two, what's in the way? Have we really articulated the bottleneck? And have we articulated some prospective strategies? I call this the triad. And it's close to what Rummel suggests. And it's very much along the lines of him talking about the crux, his new book, and in a good strategy, bad strategy, what's going on? Get to this right away. Remember the minimum essential strategy matrix. Create something right away that's already informing decision-making and start working it immediately. And if you're an entrepreneur, you can do this on two pages. And I say one of the rules on the strategy matrix is never let it be long, bigger than one page. And immediately ask, well, what do we need to know now to make a decision to get to the next stage? So I think a truly adaptive method is very fast because it cuts out all of this predetermined stuff that that people think strategy has to have. And it doesn't. You don't bring in all that data until the process demands it, until there's creative tension to have it. Um, you were talking about bottlenecks before, and, and I think everybody's wondering, before you even start doing the planning, how do you know where the perceived bottlenecks will be and how do you avoid them? Well, let's start with the question, how do you know what they're what they'll be? You start with that triad. What's my aspiration here? What's the goal? What do we need to change? What do we need to create? And then ask what's in the way. And I give many thought starters for this. It can be assets. It could be money. But it's not limited to these tangible things. It can be complexity. It can be even emotional issues, confusion. It can be um, a lack of market intelligence. It can be a lack of knowledge. It can be difficulty in suppliers. You'd be amazed once you put this little triad up of what's the aspiration, what's the bottleneck, and what could possibly bust those bottlenecks, how quickly the ideas flow. Um, I have the thought starters, but I find people just naturally start thinking, yeah, if we, we got to get rid of that, or we got to add to that to be able to achieve this. Yeah. How are we going to do it? So I don't think there's any any problems with people getting to bottlenecks. There was a second part to the question I might not have gotten to. No, no, uh, the, the, no. I, I basically asked as before you start the strategic planning, how do you figure out where the bottlenecks could possibly be so you could avoid them? Well, you can't avoid them, and that I think is one of the crucial things. What does Elon Musk say? So many. So many business people indulge in wishful thinking. Well, wishful thinking is avoiding the bottlenecks, avoiding the reality of what's in the way of your aspiration. No, we don't have the right people. We don't have the right, the right intelligence, knowledge about the market. We don't have the right strategy. We're too complex. We got to face this stuff. Um, so there is no avoiding bottlenecks. What there is is facing them and then creating policies and creating frameworks and a strategic plan that addresses them and lessens them. Um, you write that disciplined processes can lead to creativity and innovation because I think many people believe the opposite. And, and But Charlie Parker said there that you just gave this example with Charlie Parker, which kind of mirrors that. Well, that's exactly, we. so we really talked about this already. This is, and I think, 
I think this is one of the greatest things that is going to come out of the science of complex adaptive systems and seeing how um, and seeing how culture is essentially an evolutionary process. It will show how crucial discipline is. Now, there's really some tough things to explain this. Um, and in chapter two, I go into some depth on this. There's a there's a terrible paradox. How do you explain Charlie Parker, Marie Curie, um, Elon Musk, Steve Jobs, name it, Henry Ford? How do you explain that they're both extremely free? Charlie Parker invented things no one ever heard. He was totally free and extremely disciplined at the same time. This is a paradox that has to be solved. And many people have tried to solve it. Mintzberg, Henry Mintzberg and others, you can, you can find them. I list a bunch in the book and there's an appendix on it uh, online. Um, they say, well, they alternate. They alternate between being free and then being disciplined. And I heard this a million times from consultants and so forth. Yeah, today we're being rigid and uh, rigorous and disciplined and tomorrow we're gonna be free thinking. But this is one of the real changes that I'm suggesting. That's not the solution to the paradox. The solution to the paradox is that the discipline is at these low levels and the freedom is allowing what the low levels tell you to occur at the high levels. And I think um, this is probably the greatest challenge we've got in moving in the direction of understanding evolutionary and adaptive systems. A question from the audience. Uh, can you talk about nested system and therefore what might be overarching bottleneck and less bottlenecks down than uh, nested hierarchy? Yeah. So nested systems is also an idea that's that's very, uh, very well known. I put a little bit of a spin on it that um, you don't I, what, what we don't want is to say that the CEO is the only person with a strategy in a company and then everybody else's job is to execute that that strategy so that's the idea of there that um the ceo has a strategy framework and then everybody else's strategy framework is in is is to execute or implement that the ceo i say no i say this yes the CEO has a strategy framework with tactics and goals and all kinds of bottlenecks and all kinds of things, but so does everybody else. So does every other function. And that's nested systems where the lower level systems support the, um, uh, the higher level systems. The piece that's really different is everybody has a strategy. It's not that the CEO is the only one with a strategy. So if the CEO says, we have a strategy, we're going to stop using XYZ supplies and, and XYZ materials, the operations and the production people have a strategy to figure out how to do that. But they also have a strategy. So that's how nested systems work. And there's a chapter on that, chapter seven. Uh, same, another question from the audience. What are the five disqualifiers of strategy? You must be reading my list of questions. The five disqualifiers are a new set of tests of strategy. And everybody's familiar with famous tests of strategy um, from McKinsey and uh, uh, Michael Porter and, and several others. Um, 
these five disqualifiers came from the theory of strategy. I think I mentioned that the way I derived strategy foundationally was to create a little model of complex adaptive systems using an influence diagram. And from that, I got something called the killer problems of innovation, the things that actually are fundamentally difficult to do in adaptive systems. Those killer problems are kind of tricky to use directly. So I turn them into five questions. Is the opposite as absurd? Does it have numbers? Is it a duplicate of the parent in the nested structure? Is it, um, does it exclude anything? And is it a list? If you can answer yes to any of those five questions when you're evaluating your strategy, what you have is probably not a strategy. They're very, very useful tools because they're not as subjective as traditional strategy tests. And there's a range of good and bad of traditional. But think of McKinsey's number one strategy test. It goes, will your strategy beat the market? Oh, what the hell? If you knew the answer to that, what you knew wouldn't need to do anything. Just go home and, and get rich and famous, you know? Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's of no value. Um, these tests are much less uh, subjective and uh, they really give insight into the functioning of, of the strategy. Question from the audience. How would or should developing a strategic plan for a small business be different than a large firm? with the number of people involved in the organization should affect how the strategy is developed? Well, I think there's two questions there. Number, well, no, maybe not. Um, yes and no. With a smaller organization, if they're not geographically spread out and, you know, very busy on the front lines, as I described, and people can come together. Maybe it can be a little faster, but you still want the same soak. I think the issue for smaller organizations is that you want to um, you want to do the same the same process, the same matrix, the same triad, um, but scale it as needed. Uh, smaller organizations don't have as many nested systems. Smaller organizations don't have as many degrees of freedom, not as many regions, not as many functions. So it's simpler in practice, and it will automatically scale to that. Unlike strategy methods that say you have to follow these exact steps, those don't scale to the... Uh, to the size of the organization. Uh, I was working with a nonprofit just recently that, you know, it was three people and they all did it together and it went very quickly to the, get to some, some real uh, good questions, maybe a couple of weeks. Can strategic planning be done on Zoom? You know, I mean, what, the, what happened to strategic planning during the two years, essentially we were locked down and now a lot of companies, people aren't coming back or, or they're, just decided to let them work at home? Well, I think it can be done. And especially if you stick to the discipline of keep the strategy matrix on one page, keep the, keep the, uh, the triad, the, the aspiration bottleneck strategy triad on one page. And with Zoom, you share screens, everybody can work on it live, the audio is good. Actually, I think Zoom is an excellent format for collaborating on strategy. 
Uh, why do you write a statement with numbers, dates, really function as a strategy, but so many finance types think that is strategy? And you talked about this when you kicked off uh, the program. So um, this is the second disqualifier. If a strategy statement, if, if a, a statement that you have that you think is a strategy has a number, it's almost certainly not a strategy. It's a goal. Grow by 10% in XYZ region. Um, reduce cost by. Uh, launch a new product by. These are all goals. They're not strategies. They're not rules that would guide decision-making during the process. This is one of the most valuable, this is a very valuable disqualifier that's immediately used. You don't have to know anything about what people are talking about. But if you see a number, it's almost 100%, 99% a goal. There are some exceptions, but you can read about them in chapter eight. Uh, question from the audience. The five questions again and again, please. And which one sinks the boat the most? The five disqualifiers? Yeah. Well, I say the opposite test is probably one of the most valuable. Um, there's two, the opposite and the list. What the opposite does is ferrets out truisms and cliches. Um, our goal is to grow 10% faster than the competition. Okay, the, a num the numbers will rule that one out. Our goal is to be the most excellent uh, uh, producer of whatever. Um, our goal is to uh, uh, to be number one, in, to be uh, 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 excellent in product performance, to have the highest quality, well, what about the what the lowest quality? Yeah, um, unexcellent, uh, uh, poor customer service. The minute you put the opposite on a statement, you see whether it's just a, a truism or cliche. Because if there is no opposite, there's no trade-off. You're not really saying anything. You're not doing anything new. Maximize financial value as opposed to minimize financial value. Even a nonprofit wouldn't want to minimize non. Um, max uh, financial value. So there's no value. But the opposite test brings out some really subtle ones. For example, and this is where I disagree with Porter a little, low cost is not actually a good strategy statement. No one would want high cost. You might accept high cost for a strategy that demanded it, but low cost would itself not be a strategy. The list test is Almost never is a list a strategy because there's no trade-offs. There's no coherence amongst all the items. And if there were coherence in a list, the strategy would still not be the list. It'd be the statement, the policy that makes them all coherent. Um, another question from the audience. What association, if any, do you believe strategy has to company culture? That's an interesting question. Yeah. Well, I think how well you do strategy is related to company culture. Is the is the um, is the culture able to do analytical thinking? Because analytical thinking is part of that discipline. Again, Charlie Parker. It was very analytical what he did at the low levels, but not at the high levels. Uh, culture can really set the ability of an organization to do strategy. The other angle is. If you want to change a culture, you need a strategy as well. What's the bottleneck to changing it? You have to know. 
How far in executing your plan should you measure results and decide to stay the course or make the change? Can you repeat it? Uh, sure. How far in, into executing your plan should you measure results and decide to stay the course or change? Thanks. Um, yeah, that's great. Um, the, the dashboard that I propose in part two, I call it the four station dashboard, um, has a new part. And it's called adherence, measurement of adherence. And this is because I define strategy and tactics as rules and policies. Well, the first question before you start to measure results is to ask, are we actually doing what the strategy said we had to do? That measurement has to happen <clears throat> immediately because without that, without that measurement, you can't judge the outcome. You can't judge if the strategy is working or not. How can you judge something if you don't know whether you're doing it? So the, the, the baseball player or a cricket player, how can you judge based on how many home runs if you don't know that you're doing the skills and the, and the disciplines of your mechanics uh, that you developed? Why did you write calculating net present value isn't very useful? Because, because these aggregate financial terms like NPV and EVA, uh, economic value add and return on investment, IRR, it's all the same for me with all of them. Um, what happens is all of the rough edges are worn off. You do everything you can to get everything into a number. And a series of numbers over five or 10 years that frankly just becomes a making up numbers exercise. And all the things that are hard to put into, num into uh, numbers get lost. Complexity, um, adherence to values, um, uh, difficulty, um, you know, adherence to what customers value that you can't put into a revenue number. Um, all kinds of things that can't be put into a number are then dismissed and considered soft. But the truth is that numbers are soft too when you're talking about the future. Yeah, I always hate it, you know, when uh, you're working with clients and you're proje uh, projecting revenue going forward and, you know, and you're grading each potential client about whether they're going to buy or not. I always felt that was a useless, um, a, a waste of time. I mean, it's easy for Microsoft and others to predict who's going to be using software because they know a computer will only last so long or whatever. But a lot of the stuff is very unpredictable. What did you mean when you wrote an uncertain, uncertain future isn't necessarily a pessimistic one? Yeah, um, that comes out of the chapter on scenarios. And scenarios are um, different futures different environments in which you'll be implementing that can have a huge impact on your performance and, and your results. So for example, classic ones are interest rates, right? And, uh, and inflation and uh, things like that. But there's many other environments, uh, conditions and events, uh, world conditions, a, a war breaks out, uh, a competitor just does something you didn't, uh, you didn't expect. Um, Traditionally, people tend to be falsely conservative by 
by only looking at the things that could go bad when they're evaluating a strategy alternative. But the truth is many things can go very good. And uh, you have to look at the upside of a strategy alternative as much as you have to look at the downside if you're really going to get a uh, uh, an honest view of it. Is there a difference in staffing when you are an outside consultant? Should you involve your clients by making some part of the strategic planning committee or should they just be interviewed as part of the process? I think that the rules are the same whether you have an outside consultant do it or an insider who's leading the process. And I outline a bunch of these in those five task sets that uh, are online. Um, You have to have a core a group that can shepherd the process properly and they can be um they can be outsiders or insiders but there is a core and then there's people outside that have to be connected to the process in the appropriate way and the, i don't think there's any rule that says it would be different with outside leadership or inside leadership What's the difference between good analysis and bad analysis? I mean, how do you know it's bad analysis until you see what the results are? Well, I think there's two places we can go on that. The first is what we talked about before, not getting all the data and doing SWOT analysis and pestle analysis and environmental scans before you've even asked the question, what are we trying to do and what you know, what's in the way? What's the bottleneck? All that analysis can often be completely irrelevant to what ends up being the process. The other side of analysis is making assessments in the strategy matrix. What kind of analysis is good quality there? And that gets a little more sophisticated. And I spent a lot of time on that. That's where you've got to get different voices, different stakeholders, different different views, different models. And a good analysis is one where you really beat it up where you really hit it hard until you're really feeling like the answers are fit. And there's no recipe to know that. You have to learn how to do that. Um, You list sequential steps that most people follow when developing a strategy, but you write, it's unimaginable to solve real world problems this, uh, this way. It seems logical to me. Why doesn't this work? Well, here I'm going after, you know, the typical Chevron strategy process. And we've talked a lot about parts of it. Um, set your goal, environmental scanning and SWAT, define, uh, an al- do an analysis, define your strategy, create plans, create metrics, scenarios, implement, all in a, in a linear line. The problem is that what what you did on step five might influence very heavily what you did in step one. This is why software development had to change from go- going in these sequential steps. You have to do it all as a whole because every piece influences the other. You might even get to metrics only to realize that your bottleneck wasn't what you thought it was. It has to be done as a complete holistic exercise and evolve the system as a whole. That's putting a puzzle together versus baking a cake with a recipe. You can't really innovate following a recipe. 
a question from the audience. Please discuss who should be and could be included in the strategic planning process. It all comes down to whose voice needs to be in it. And there's several criteria for that. Um, I love the old saying, the three W's, people that can bring, bring uh, wisdom, work, or wealth. Uh, I also have the four D's, which I won't mention here. <laughs> you can look up, but um, which are the opposite. Um, I think it, it relates to many things. Who's got knowledge of the system that has to be changed? Who is very influential about what will be acceptable or not? Who has to implement it is a huge one. And this is, again, why I want extending in time so that you can get people on the front lines. One of the best ways to implement a strategy, a strategy framework, is to have the people who designed it have to own it and implement it. And I don't know how many people must have experienced rolling out a strategy to the organization that they had no part of in, in creating. Um, I think this is probably the number one consideration. The people who have to do it and implement it, are they going to be involved? Should strategies, and we talked a little bit about this before, should strategies be numerically measurable? Because everybody wants to measure everything. Not strategies. Adherence to strategy, maybe. But what should be numerically measurable is your goals, your aspirations. Something that you can say, not, not your vision necessarily, but your specific goals. And I differentiate visions and missions from specific goals. Uh, goals are numerical. They got names and dates and numbers associated with them. But your strategy is a rule. The only thing you would measure there is whether you're adhering to it. Uh, please explain how scenarios influence your choice of frameworks. We, talk, we talked about this. Um, uh, if you have strategy alternatives that are extremely sensitive to interest rates, for example, and this is the classic thing, right? You would, you would consider each alternative that you have under a scenario of high interest rate and a scenario of low interest rate. And the key with scenarios is you can't use them as forecast. You can't pick one and say, well, I'm going to guess this one. You're, the strategy alternatives are at the mercy of both scenarios. And uh, of course, the strategy alternative you would pick is the one that gives you the best outcome that you want under the possibility of two different external scenarios of interest rates. So there's one simple example, but there's a whole chapter on the details of doing these. And there's a lot of misconceptions about how to design and implement uh, scenarios into a strategy matrix. And I lay them out in, uh, in a lot of detail. Well, uh, that's kind of my next question is, what's the formula for developing useful scenarios and a formula that can improve the chances of developing and executing a successful strategy? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. And it's actually a very interesting answer. Part of the problem with scenarios is it's easy to imagine them. You can get a few people in a room and the next thing you know, you got 25 bullet points about how the future environment could be different from whatever angle you want to look at, political, economic, macroeconomic, microeconomic, um, competitors, not in kind, 
whatever you want to talk about. It's so easy to create these futures, these multiple futures. The hard part is incorporating them into the matrix and evaluating your strategies against them. And the real trick is to make them a little bit simple so that you don't get all caught up in how complicated it becomes. So is all I can say is there's about 10 design principles in chapter um, 13 that'll enable you to do that. What does this useful assessment look like and how do you know if you've nailed it? This is around this question around analysis. When you make assessments about one strategy versus another against your fitness criteria, how you judge them, there is no magic. Uh, This is where the skill really comes in and the team design and your debate. This is something we haven't talked about it, but something, you know, I'm not the only one who's saying this process has to be hard with the strategy matrix. Um, If it's not hard with some trade-offs and some real pain points and complication and disagreement, um, you're probably really not, you're not digging in. Um, How to make assessments and how to make these judgments is uh, a combination of many analytical and emotional uh, emotional things that uh, you have to develop skills on. And I try my best to lay out ways to to do that and to test yourself. I also have many questions you can ask yourself. Have we done these things to make our assessments? Pete, uh, this is my final question. And you've kind of addressed this throughout the day, but uh, how many times have you heard companies say our strategy, and, and it's kind of almost a joke, is to maximize profits or be more efficient when no one expects a company to say the opposite. I mean, nobody says we are. We want to be inefficient and so forth. Um, what's a better or more meaningful way of stating this to get at the same things? Well, I think it it's how are you going to get more efficient? How are you going to be more profitable and to grow? I mean, strategy is how. Is it's part of the how, along with plans and metrics and all the other aspects of a framework. But I think the problem is that we just load on aspirations. And as I said before, we list them and they all sound a lot like what you just described, some with numbers and some not. And we call that strategy. And it's a bad habit that's been going on for a long time. What's the last piece of advice you'd give to anybody who's starting, especially these entrepreneurs, because we have a lot of entrepreneurs around the world who listen to this, about how to create a a meaningful strategy that they can share with investors and internally with their own employees so everybody feels like there's a solid plan here and we're going in the right direction. Because I think a lot of times employees feel like, uh, especially in an entrepreneurial environment, they're just, just uh, shooting from the hip, that they don't really have a solid plan and that that plan seems to keep changing. I think we've touched on this, but I'm glad it's uh, being asked as a last question. Um, this method, this approach scales. You don't start with the whole thing. You only start with the kernel of what you need, this triad. I say that if you start with a simple triad, and a simple little matrix and a few other techniques that you could include on two or three pages, you can already start the dialogue and only ask, only go out and get more information 
and do more research and do more modeling when the process tells you to. And take, take that simple few pages and get it out to people who can criticize it, who can beat it up, who can see the flaws in it and immediately make changes with it and live with it. Don't treat it as an event to be finished in a week and then you're going to move to implementation. What do entrepreneurs do? They adapt, they respond to their environment at all times, but they do have some internal policies, some internal rules, some beliefs that are guiding their decision-making. But the good entrepreneurs, what do they do? As soon as there's evidence that those beliefs might be wrong, they change. So keep it a living thing and keep it very small and simple with some basic design principles that are laid out in that little triad and that matrix. Pete, this was awesome. A lot for them to digest. They, everybody, I hope, will get your um, book. But I think you really did a good job of explaining how s solid strategic planning should work and, and uh, give people a basis to start uh, developing their own plans that are going to actually be meaningful for themselves, their board, and the employees, and even their vendors who are stakeholders in them. So thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for having me, and thank everybody for uh, joining in and for the questions. And Pete, thank I you. hope we'll get together because you live so close to me. You got a deal. All right, everybody, have a great weekend. See you next Friday. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.